Don't value people by what they have. Value people because they're people. And if God values them and searches for them and longs for them to come home and looks for them to come home, then followers of Jesus ought to do the same. That's why Jesus was a friend of sinners, by prioritizing being close over being correct. Well, welcome to week two of our series, Friend of Sinners. We learned last week that just like Jesus, we should be friends of sinners because God is more interested in people who are far from him, becoming close to him, coming home to him, than he is just simply being correct and them staying distant. It's a priority to them. Being a friend of sinners doesn't mean that we uh, placate sin, that we just kind of give it lip service that we're against it, but then indulge in it. But it's a deliberate choice to say that we are going to prioritize being close over being correct. And these next three weeks, we're going to talk about how we can do that. Last week, we learned why. And today, and the next two weeks, we're going to learn how we can prioritize being close to people so that maybe we get called, you're hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. And that's okay, because Jesus prioritized associating with the wrong kinds of people. We're going to learn how this works. Because frankly, Christians have had a pretty checkered past on putting this into practice on how this works. You see, God's desire to be close to sinners and to bring them home and to be close to sinners before they come home is something that we struggle with. It's something that we've found difficult to put into practice. It's called a gospel worldview. And keeping that gospel worldview foundational in our lives isn't always easy when we're faced with some of the tensions that we're facing in our lives, especially right now. Last week, we talked about three major tensions that are all compiling in each other, that are just adding tension to life. Uh, the one is that we're in a political season of electing a new president. And anytime we're doing that, it seems like everything is politicized. And we're living in a uh, an era and a time now when civil rights are coming back into forefront, into discussion. And even just this past week, we saw it happen here in our city where the question of, of civil rights and police authority have come head to head. And how do we, how do we process that in light of a gospel worldview? And how do we safely navigate the pandemic? Let's face it. Christians have not handled any of these situations, politics and civil rights and the pandemic, very well. We've not done a, a really clear, crystal clear job of keeping a gospel worldview center when it, came to making, when it comes to making decisions about these kinds of things. And it's harder, but it's more critical that we view these things through the lens of Am I wanting people who are sinners to come home to God above all other things that we're thinking about? That's what it means to keep a gospel-centered worldview foundational. It means that we're not viewing 
our Christianity through the lens of our politics. It's not that we're viewing civil, uh, our Christianity through civil rights. It's not that we're viewing Christianity through the lens of the pandemic, but it's the other way around. How am I viewing the pandemic through the lens of this gospel worldview of being a friend of sinners? How am I viewing my politics through the lens of being a friend of sinners? How am I viewing civil rights and police authority through the lens of being a friend of sinners? Uh, I think we need to do that, but we've not handled it well. And we've not handled big questions and frankly, little questions sometimes. We've not handled them well. We've not always held a gospel-centered framework, foundational, a lens to view the big questions of life where anyone has an opinion, where it seems like we can discuss a lot of different things. Um, it's easier to think that we're doing a really great job at this. It's easy to think that we're already friends of sinners because who would disagree with our opinions? Because we're right. <laughs> we really don't have a great track record in this though. When I was growing up, I grew up in a in a fairly traditional church, but I grew up in an era where sometimes uh, women were called out because they didn't wear a skirt or a dress uh, to church. They wore pants, if you can believe that. Pants, of all things. Uh, and it doesn't seem like that much of an issue today, but back then it was. Uh, in our growth group this past week, uh, Dave Knight was sharing a story where he, uh, our leader, Dave Knight, he, he shared how the big issue at one point was divorce and how uh, if you got divorced, then you weren't allowed in any form of Christian ministry. You couldn't be in leadership. You couldn't, you were just, you were just done. Divorce was that one thing that just, it, it, well, it just meant that there's no coming back, that you were damaged goods from then on. We don't have a great track record in this. Christians and denominations and churches have split apart, have sundered over all sorts of little tiny things. Some of them big, but some of them little, and they all have one thing in common. It's, the issues are varied. They're things like the types of music in church, uh, women in leadership, women as pastors, women as preachers. What movies can you go see? What music can you listen to? Um, what's your view of psychiatry? What's your view of business ethics? Uh, what's your view of uh, vaccinations? What's your view of uh, homeschooling versus public schooling? What's uh, stem cell research, uh, video games, card games, uh, dressing up and going out for Halloween? Using the word Halloween. The issues about sex and intimacy. Views on war and the military. Uh, uh, opinions on immigration and minorities. We've split over some of these things are just small, small issues. Some of them are larger scale. And they, have all, they all have one thing in common. We don't have a framework that allows us to wrestle with these questions through a gospel-centered worldview. And so we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about how to develop a worldview that says, I am going to prioritize being a friend of sinners, being close to them, even if I have to become uncomfortable. 
And I want to talk to you about the first way that we can do that in a, in a teaching that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 6. It's in Luke chapter 6, we read this. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Well, that's a pretty famous verse. It's uh, normally used as a defense when uh, Christians are arguing, uh, maybe saying you shouldn't be doing something, or that's something that you shouldn't start doing. And you can say, well, who are you to judge me? The Bible says, do not judge, or, or you will be judged. But that's a misunderstanding of this text. Um, this is one of the two biggest misapplied verses uh, in church history that I've seen, or at least in my lifetime that I've seen. Uh, the other one is where two or three are gathered together, there I am with them, as if God needed two people to be in a place before he could enter the room or enter the space where they are. Uh, I'm pretty sure that God is everywhere, so I know that's not what that text means. And what people quote here is that, hey, you're not allowed to judge me because Jesus said, do not judge but we have to read the whole verse in the rest of the context of the rest of his teaching. And he continues on to say, uh, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, this text is not about refusing to judge others. Because later on in the New Testament, Paul would tell the church in Corinth that before they take their disagreements into the courts, to take it to the church, that the church can help them settle their disagreements. We're told that in the end times and in, at the end of the world, that Christians will judge the world, will judge angels. And we know from church history, from the very first stories of the church getting started from the book of Acts, that Peter judged Ananias and Sapphira. So this can't be about the fact that we aren't allowed to judge. What it is saying is this, the way that we treat others is the way that others will treat us. That's a general rule of life. That's a general principle that Jesus had said just earlier, a few verses above, when he's talking about loving your enemies. In verse 31 of this same chapter, he says, do to others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. If you want people to judge you well, then you judge them well. If you want uh, people to not condemn you, then don't be condemning to others. If you want other people to forgive you when you do wrong, then you forgive them first. Give and it will be given to you. It's, it's a give and take kind of a world. There's a, a something in life called the law of reciprocity. That when someone does something good and kind and gracious to us, we feel uh, a compulsion, a natural de desire that says, hey, I want to do something back like uh, in, in the same way that you have done to me. I, you've done something nice to me. I want to do something nice to you. That's what Jesus is saying. So he would say, don't just love your friends, love your enemies so that they can become friends. Judging isn't bad. What matters is your motivation. It's not about whether or not you judge someone. It's why you judge someone. If we weren't allowed to judge anyone, then parents wouldn't be allowed to actually make rules for their households because they couldn't raise their children. So that's not what this passage is about. It's about our motivation. It's not that we judge, it's why we judge. 
And there's only two motivations why we judge others. When we look at someone and what they've done, or we look at their uh, thinking, we look at their ideas, we look at their opinions, we have two types of responses. The one is that we want to condemn what they've said or what they've done, or that we want to restore what they've said or what they've done. We either want to condemn them or we either want to restore them. And Jesus says that restoring is better than the other. See, it's easy to condemn, but Christians need to do more. So he would say, don't just love your friends, love your enemies as well. Because judging to condemn just states facts with no intention of actually helping people move on, move closer, become closer, come back home to God. And Jesus says, well, why don't you try to be part of the solution? Because that's what restoring does. And there's something that happens as Christians in the natural development of our faith that we need to be on guard against. You see, Many Christians over time believe that simply pointing out sin and pointing out society's wickedness is the solution to people's sins and society's wickedness. And Jesus says that doesn't work. You have to be able to talk to people about sin. You have to be able to talk to people about witnesses, uh, wickedness, but there is a way to do that. Because here's what happens when all we do is say, you're wrong, I'm judging that, I'm condemning that, this is sin, this is wickedness. Naturally, Christians believe that Jesus is a better way to live, that he's the way to eternal life, a way to a better life now because we're closer to God. We're now glory bearers of God. If you remember back to our series, Missing Church, and now we have all of that restored. So we believe that not only is Jesus better later when we get to see him face to face, but that Jesus is better now, that Jesus is better for life now because we have God with us. We have his Holy Spirit with us, guiding us. We have his people shaping us. We believe that following Jesus doesn't just give us eternal life, but it makes us give us a better life because it makes us into better people, into the people God intended us to be. But sometimes, sometimes, that development of becoming a better person can make us think that we're better than others. We begin to compare ourselves not to where we were to where we are, but to where we are versus where other people around us who are farther from God are. Instead of comparing ourselves only to ourselves, we compare ourselves to others around us. And being better off because of Jesus can become a belief that we're simply just better, better than others around us. And what happens is that our desire to show the world that Jesus is really better becomes condemning. And Jesus himself would say, I've not come into the world to condemn it. That's not why I'm here. Our desire to be in the world, but not of the world, creeps into our thinking that we're not in the world, uh, we're in the world, not of the world, but we're above it. We're above it, looking down on it. We're condemning it. And instead of that making us Christ-like, it actually makes us graceless. 
And we become condemning instead of restoring. We point fingers at people and say, you're what's wrong with the world. When people share an opinion that we don't agree with, we tell them that they're the problem that's making our country terrible, our lives terrible, our world terrible, that they're the problem. And if they were gone, the world would be better. And we do that in all of the areas of tension in life today. We see that from Christians making those kinds of statements in politics. That you will vote this way or you're not a Christian. You will vote my way or you're not a Christian. You'll have this view about civil rights. You'll have this view about police authority or you're just, you're just the problem. You know, the way you're handling the pandemic is the reason why I don't have my freedoms today. We don't have our freedoms today. We haven't solved this pandemic already. It's because of you. And we point fingers. And Jesus says there's a problem with that. When you point fingers, how do you lead people to a God who loves them? Because that's not the God they're seeing in us. He says this in uh, verse 39. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Students become like their teacher. So what are the people around us becoming like? What are the people around us becoming like? That's a good indication of who we are. They will become like you. And if you're condemning and judgmental, not judging well, but judgmental, then you will produce people who are condemning and judgmental. You will show them how to do that. And unfortunately, as we learned last week, that's not God's way. And the underlying point of this verse is not only will other people treat you the way you treat others, God will treat you the same way. God will treat you the same way that you treat others and he will pour it out in abundance. Our job on this earth is not to condemn. It is to restore. So how do we stay away from the finger pointing, from the fear mongering, from the posturing that says as we look around in the world and all of these opinions come with all of these hot issues, some of them big, some of them little, and we say, you're the problem. How do we avoid that? How do we stay away from that and stay focused more on gospel-centered worldview where our desire is to be a friend of sinners first and foremost? How do we do that? Well, we read in verse 41, Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. Jesus says, be more concerned about your own tendency to be hypocritical before you worry about others' 
people's opinions. Worry about the sin in your life before you worry about the sin of others. And that's what happens, right? Like when Christians start to feel like they're better, they they feel that because they're choosing to sin less. But let's be honest, that doesn't make us less of a sinner than those around us. The apostle Paul would call himself the chief of sinners. And the apostle Paul has done more than I have done in ministry, more than we have done in ministry, probably combined. And yet he would still think of himself as the chief of sinners. So think first of our own sin. Be more concerned about our sin before God, before others' sins before God. And the way that we do that is this. When other people's opinions seem to really raise something us up in us, raise something up in us, then ask ourselves, Why? Why do I feel that way about this particular issue? Let's face it, not every sin really raises the, the, the hackles of Christians, so to speak. It doesn't really raise our, our, our blood. It doesn't get our blood boiling. doesn't, you know, it kind of get us outraged and it doesn't get us concerned as much as other sins. So why is it that that particular sin seems to bother us? I mean, the, the big issue that we often see, especially in an election year, is what is a candidate's view on abortion? And Christians ought to stand for pro-life, no question. But where's the stand and the, the views on premarital sex that Jesus would talk about? Because if you look at the statistics between people of faith and and people who who don't believe in Jesus, the the statistics are pretty equal about who's having premarital sex and what's our view on sex. So we raise one issue up over another. And the reason is we raise up the issues that we'll never do. We raise up those things that we think we'll never accomplish. But what about those other things, right? I remember um, Andy Stanley once said in a talk, a famous preacher um, and uh, biblical communicator from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, pastors one of the biggest churches in America and has uh, multi-site campuses all over the world. Has helped pastors, uh, churches be really effective in keeping this idea of, of being a friend of sinners a priority in our lives. He said once, you know, if all the Christians for just one year would quit looking at porn, would quit smoking weed, would quit having premarital sex, would quit committing adultery, would pay their taxes, and every church would just foster one kid. Our nation would be different in a year. There's a reason is that when we start to wrestle through why that sin begins to trigger something in us, We gain a sense of our own sin. And that builds empathy. That builds empathy to people's situation and sensitivity to people's struggle with sin. And that helps us to love people who maybe we feel are our enemies. Because we recognize that we also struggle with sin. Sometimes even the same sin. Sometimes it's a different sin, but it's related. And it means that it gives us a real empathy for what other people are going through. It doesn't mean that we we never speak truth. It just means that we speak truth to ourselves first. We listen 
before we lecture. We want to be concerned that we're dealing more with our internal appearance, more than other people's outward appearance. It's interesting to me that when people in the church, Christians struggle, they feel like the last place they can reveal their struggles with sin or with temptation or with questions that may not really hold to a biblical worldview like uh, issues regarding uh, LGBTQ, uh, all of the kind of, of hotbed questions, it feels like the last place they can bring those topics up or those sins up or those discussions up or those areas where they're struggling in their life up is in the church or to the church family. Why is it that Christians can't tell their church where they're struggling. Can't tell people in the church where they're struggling. It's because they feel that Christians as a whole tend to worry more about the speck in someone else's eye than the plank in their own. And church, we need to change that perception. If we're going to be a friend of sinners, we need to listen before lecturing. And you know what happens if we get this right? Do you know what happens if we get this right? Well, Jesus said that we receive what we give. The way we treat others is the way that they will treat us. So treat others the way you would want to be treated. In other words, if you want people to listen to you, listen to them first. People won't listen to those who don't listen to them. So being a friend of sinners decides I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to try and figure out your motivation and try and put myself in your shoes. Why would I do the things that you're doing even though I disagree with them so that I can fully understand? And if there's anything in me that God reveals out of that, then I want to make sure I'm right with God by repenting. That's the balance. That's the, not, not balance, that's the blend of grace and truth. It is what Jesus was, the embodiment of grace and truth. And that's how that comes to our lives. That's the doorway. That's the beginning. When we do this, when we listen before lecturing, it's like, um, like gummy vitamins. Used to be when you would take a vitamin, you had to swallow a horse pill, probably about that big. And it would get maybe sometimes stuck in your, you're going down the wrong pipe in your throat and you'd cough and hack and you'd need two or three glasses of water and your throat would burn all day. And then someone released kids vitamins, chewable, fun gummies that had, they had different flavors and they were fun and they were healthy for you. They were great. And then the adults kind of said, um, where's ours? Can we, can we get some of that? We'd, we'd like some of that. And now all of a sudden, adult gummies are everywhere. You can get all sorts of good vitamins in a gummy form because it makes it easier to swallow. That's what listening does. Listening first allows you to teach later that makes it easier to swallow because you've listened. It's also um, another way to think of it is it's like how to get wallpaper off. Um, not a fan of wallpaper, never have been. And every time we've moved, it seems like every house we've gone in has had wallpaper somewhere. And you know, the best way to remove wallpaper is not to cut it out. <laughs> that just leaves gouges and holes and walls. The best way is steam because steam loosens the glue 
that's holding the wallpaper to the wall. And you can peel it off slowly over time, just with steam. Listening is the steam that allows you to pull what shouldn't be there slowly because the glue has dissolved and the person isn't as attached to that opinion anymore. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Discover their motivations and situations. New Maybe change along the way. Grace and truth are a lot more effective because grace is what makes us open to truth in the first place. So before we point our fingers at someone, let's put ourselves under the microscope, under the microscope of God's word, under the microscope of God's teaching, of God's people, of his Holy Spirit. Let's listen before lecturing. A few questions for you as we wrap up today, as we uh, give you a chance to maybe uh, talk with your family or to ponder them, write some answers down in your journal and discuss them in your groups this week. Here they are. Question one, can you think of a time in your life when listening before lecturing helped you to personally change? And question two, what are some practical ways that Christians can become aware of hypocrisy in their lives? Let's pray. Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us for the times when we've tried to help someone else with their, their clear sin and ignored even greater sin in our lives? Lord, would you help us that when someone presents an opinion that's different than ours, when someone does something different than we would do, and it gets us riled up, when it gets our blood boiling, would you help us to pause? Would you help us to ask you for insight as to why this is bothering us so much? And Lord, would you use that moment, that moment of just coming to you saying, we don't want to be hypocrites, Lord, if there's anything that's in us that is making us more sensitive to this than we should, would you help us to deal with it? Would you bring those things to mind so that we can repent of those things and be right with you? Lord, would you help us to become a people and to be a people who listen to the motivations and the ideas and dreams of others before we make a passing judgment on who they are because of how much they disagree with us. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom in this and help us to listen before lecturing, to help develop that gospel-centered worldview where we prioritize being a friend of sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.